0: Welcome, You've Got Mail. Ahoy there. Welcome aboard, You've Got Mail. We are back. Uh, question to kick things off here, and spoiler alert, the answer is rhetorical. Do you like apples? Hmm? Yeah, do you? We got picked up for a second ac- second episode. How do you like them apples? That's right, after receiving just enough positive feedback from our fans, the powers that be had to greenlight chapter two of this saga. We're excited, fired up. We're ready to rock, but uh, before we get into the show, and there is a lot to cover, uh, we wanted to take a second and inform our audience of some slight changes to the setup here at You've Got Mail. In a move somewhat reminiscent of Charlie Conway in D2 when he uh, gave up his roster spot to Adam Banks, after Banksy made a quick recovery from a wrist injury. Town, Matt Meredith, decided to pull himself from the starting lineup in order to make way for uh, a young up-and-coming podcast talent. Good news is Town still be a big part of the show. He's going to handle all the production, which uh, we couldn't be more grateful of. He's done an amazing job already in just the one episode that we put out there. He's going to handle all of the uh, email we get from our many fans out there. And he'll also be spearheading the trivia section of the show, which will pop up uh, in between segments. Uh, but we'd like to welcome the newest member of the team. Carter, no surprise to anyone, Uh, also an Indiana University grad, also a member of the same fraternity that the rest of us were a part of. Uh, He slides right in as the resident tech expert. He's worked in the field almost as long as the town has. Baltimore-born, Central Florida Gulf Coast raised. Uh, We add yet another metro area to the group. We now have pretty much the entire Eastern Seaboard covered. And when it comes time uh, to return to life as we formerly knew it, he will feed us an incredible amount of local news, which uh, is usually the best that you can find throughout the calendar year. It almost always starts with a Florida man and almost always ends with meth, amphetamines or alcohol. Uh, Now, let's belly up to the bar. Let's grab a menu. Let's find out what's on tap.
1: One after a long day, huh? Oh yeah. yeah, I've been known to drink a beer or two. But then again, I've been known to do a lot of things.
0: Okay, so what we should be talking about, amongst other things, is opening day, first week and weekend of baseball. Should have started last Thursday, uh, and you know, I call me nostalgic, call me uh, you know a, a pseudo-boomer, but. I'm sad uh, you know, that we are without baseball and that we didn't have opening day. I think there's something truly magical about the start of the baseball season. It's kind of the unofficial ushering in of spring, reminds people that summer isn't all that far away. Uh, to me, baseball has always been hot dogs, beers, sun, free time, vacation, uh, You know, usually coincides with a pretty lax work environment. Summer Fridays, and um, it's unfortunate that we didn't have opening day, that we don't have baseball right now. I don't want to dwell on the negatives too much. I thought we could take a couple minutes and talk about some of the good memories that we have about opening day. Two things come to mind for me. One, my father, Big Roy, Roy Sr., uh, he has been to the last 44 straight Chicago White Sox home openers. Uh, It started as him and just a couple buddies going to the games. It's since morphed into this big event. Now it's a hundred plus people every year. There's a big pre post game tailgate. He ends up reserving what loosely equates to an entire section. He does sub sandwiches only in the parking lot so that no one has to worry about setting up or tearing down a grill. Uh, And I've never heard anyone complain about a few of these guys Uh, Well, excuse me, not a few of these guys. These guys all know about it, but a few of our other friends have been. um, And you almost always leave there with a story of some kind. And then one opening day in particular that might be near and dear to these guys' hearts is uh, opening day 2010. It was our junior year of college. I remember sitting around with a group of guys, might have been all – all four of these guys um, moving in and out. It was in the middle of the school week, guys going, coming from class. The sun was out. Um, I just remember it being a gorgeous spring day. And then for me personally, the Sox were playing. Might have been the Twins. I didn't end up looking up uh, the box score or anything about the game. But one play in particular, a little dribbler down the first baseline, Mark Burley, opening day starter, goes glove through the leg to Canerico who bare hands it for the out at first. Uh, We were sipping on beers, you know, wasn't chugging, wasn't shotgunning, wasn't beer bonging. It was just, you know, guys casually hanging out, watching baseball, uh, enjoying the beginning of spring. So Carter is a bit of a throwback like myself. Uh, We're probably in a very small percentile of guys under the age of 50 that love baseball and, We don't just pay attention to our local and favorite teams. We kind of keep an eye on the entire league. Carter, uh, any particular opening day moments, games uh, that come to mind that you look back on with good memories?
1: Do you smell that fresh-cut grass this year, RJ? Because I don't, and I don't like it. But uh, growing up in Baltimore, I will say there's not a particular game that stands out to me, but I remember going to – opening day every year getting cut like being able to cut school it was the best thing that i could ever do i mean that opening day every year was better than christmas we'd get to go to orio stadium camden yards watch cal ripkin roberto alomar the home run hitter himself brady anderson and rafael palmero with their dads and it was it was every year the best day of the year we get to leave at lunch and go watch baseball and you know there's nothing better than that but i now moving to Florida, you know, I I will say opening sure. day is a little different here at the Rays Stadium. It's the, <laughs> it's the only day of the year that they sell out. So uh, the atmosphere is fun, but it, it's really I was changing. actually
0: down in Tampa St. Pete last year around this time. I can't forget what exactly brought me there. It was probably work. But I remember walking around downtown St. Pete on, uh, might not have been opening day of baseball, but opening the home opener for the Rays. And- A palpable buzz in the air, the likes of which I didn't know existed. But it sounds like from our local source down there that it's all downhill. Jimmy, Darren, uh, anything either of you want to add? I know Jimmy over the years has come on as a strong baseball guy. Darren, maybe not so much, but we still love him anyway.
2: Yeah, I've got nothing here. I uh, historically not a baseball fan. Uh, If forced myself to get into it as I've gotten older, if nothing else, just Keep up with barroom conversations, but yeah, you're uh, talking the wrong guy.
3: Yeah, I think th- this is Jimmy spending time living with a couple of you idiots that are really into baseball in like freshman year of college, which is probably like over, I don't know, thirteen years ago or whatever the hell time frame we're on now. Uh, that really like got me back into baseball. I watched it a lot as a kid, but uh, kind of like lost interest in it in the formidable years, if you will. But I, I. My favorite opening day memories are maybe not necessarily anything to do with the baseball. It's just kind of like the feeling that you get. I love the logos on the field, which no, is like a great, really a random thing. But when you see, when you see, like right in between the dugout and first base, or like behind home plate, op- the MLB opening day logo, it's just it gives you gives you such a good feeling. I love when like the players line up along the baselines and you get the national anthem going. It's just like it's an uplifting day. Everybody feels fucking great on opening day. I can't ever remember an opening day game that was played in shitty weather. I feel like it's always picture perfect. That doesn't speak for the next like month, especially up in Chicago when you're, you got people wearing winter coats to Wrigley Field or Comiskey Park or the cell or whatever.
0: Yeah, I feel like people, people, suck, people suck it up, right? Even it's opening day, even if you do have shitty weather, you're just excited that the season's starting and, To Carter's point, it's an excuse to skip school or skip work, go have a couple beers and just watch baseball, right?
1: It's honestly the second best skipping of work day next to the NCAA tournament.
0: Which sadly coincide with each other every year, with the exception of uh, the one we're currently living in.
1: Yeah, I just remember working, being in a cubicle, and just having like – the octo box up on my screen watching eight different baseball games
0: all right let's uh let's start beating ourselves stop beating ourselves up about uh something that seems to be near and dear to all of our hearts that we just don't have this year. Let's get all fired up about the n f l uh you know shocker shocker hopefully this doesn't come as a surprise to anyone here listening, but uh the league office and the teams and owners seem to be butting heads about the n f l draft right now you know. One side wants to continue business as usual, adjust, obviously, um, you know, the moving pieces involved with, you know, day one, day two, and I think we call it day three now, maybe day three through 5 We've totally lost line of sight there. Others, you know, the other side wants to push it back. They want to delay it. They don't feel that they're able to get the time they need with these prospects, have doctors look at them, have the interviews. Here's how I look at it. Even with all the access that Teams, GMs, scouts have had to these guys in the past, and it's only grown year by year. I would say one out of every four decisions that these guys make end up being right. I mean, people have made an entire career about talking about the draft picks that were wrong, guys that were missed, overlooks. Um, you know, we can each tell a half dozen different stories of our favorite teams and how they blew a draft pick and around in a particular year. For a long time, this was an event held at some Radisson conference room where you had 30 some odd desks and phones and a couple of guys sitting on each. It wasn't this big spectacle. It doesn't mean it hasn't morphed into this very fun thing. But I have to imagine in the environment we're living in, this could be done you know, over some sort of Zoom conference call or just Goodell receiving calls and being in a room somewhere going up there announcing the picks. They show the clips. You got uh, Kuyper, McShay, people either six feet apart from each other or in different locations talking about these picks. Darren, am I crazy in thinking that we can stay on schedule, the draft can be done um, you know, on the dates that it's right now scheduled for without having to push it back or really overhaul it all that much? 100%.
2: You can do it without the fans. I mean, the fans are a uh, nice to have, not a need to have. And as far as the personnel evaluation, blah, 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 it's a bunch of baloney from the GMs and whoever. I, I get it. Less access to the players, less time for interviews, all that good stuff. But it's uh, like you said, at the end of the day, it, it certainly hasn't proven out to be that much more impactful in the past. Uh, generally, these guys are doing their homework year-round, uh, so to me, they're 80 to 90 percent of the way there. Uh, as a fan, interested, interested to see how it turns out. I kind of hope they stay on schedule, and and let's see if that uh, we'll, we'll have a counterfactual, if you will, to see if if picks wind up being more or less uh, accurate, if you will, in the number of busts or uh, uh, ones that wind up working out. I, I do think you know look like i said you you don't need the fans there technically but if they do a closed door event uh, you will miss like the pop culture aspect of it i mean personally personally gotta love the fans just booing goodell pretty much anytime he takes the stage uh, also gotta love the while it's toned down over the years or the, the number of occurrences uh, it hasn't been as frequent but the uh, Big time prospects sitting in the green room, sliding all the way down to the end of the first round or, or outside the first round. Aaron Rodgers comes to mind. Uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, logistically, I've, I've heard some complaints. One complaint that I will give merit to uh, for the uh, back office uh, is the idea that some of these teams, you know, if you're in New York, if you're one of the California teams, there are some issues simply just being able to get together in a war room or, or organize themselves. So maybe a, a little bit of merit there. I, I don't know. Um, I will say my personal favorite draft or or moment, if you will, was uh, 2017 in Philly. This one for town, uh, the Philly fans, I, I think were probably the best boo birds I've ever seen, uh, but even better. If you recall, it's, I think it was one of the the mid rounds where they, you know, Goodell stopped announcing the picks and they brought up former players. And Drew Pearson, a former Cowboys player, takes the stage. And to that point, every NF- NFC East team was just getting trolled by the Philly fans. And Pearson just plays right into it, just revs the crowd up, shouting about Jimmy Johnson and five time Super Bowl champs, and there's no better owner than Jerry Jones. So. Uh, it's it's the moments like that that you'll miss without the fans being there. But sure, can you do it? Absolutely.
4: I, I need to, I, I need to add my two cents if you're going to bring that up, Aaron. The Eagles won the Super Bowl that year. David Akers went to the draft the next year, which was in Dallas, and returned the favor. Ooh, I missed great, that one. Great, Meredith.
0: Something tells me that Drew Pearson and Darren Cohen would get along swimmingly because like they- – have to imagine that Mickey would have done the exact same thing in the exact same circumstance. Let's stay with the NFL for a second here. Uh, you know, free agency was an absolute black.
3: Wait, can I propose can I propose yeah, an please idea for the NFL draft? It kind of just came to me as we were talking about it, because like, look, am I gonna miss like the fan reactions, the classic New York fans booing every single pick that they make? Or am I going to miss storylines like Laramie Tunsil ripping a gas mask coming out and then, like, the camera zooming in on him in the green room? Sure, I'm going to miss all of that. But I have an idea to fix that. What if each team nominated, like, the biggest fan of their fan base and you had them on, like, this group Zoom meeting and anytime that team went to pick, you got, like, one part of the screen making the selection and the other with the fan reacting to it. I would love to see, like, the, the who's the fireman?
0: Fighter Ed. Fighter yeah, that, that's just what we need. we need. Fireman Ed and Bear Man, aka Dom, sitting in front of their 2003 Mac, you know, whatever they have taped together, announcing. Or reacting to the announcers,
3: I'd love to see. The, I'd love to see what their background is in their home too. Like you know, you're seeing all these ESPN guys going on Sports Center, like with this with a bookshelf or, like the NFL footballs that they've collected. I'd love to see Fireman Ed's background or Bearman. That'd be did, great.
2: Can Ronnie Woo Woo get an invite over to Bearman's place? Nah,
0: now you we're you thinking outside the box. Stay right, with the NFL. Stay with the NFL for a second. Uh, like I said, free agency a couple of weeks ago is an absolute blessing for any sports junkie out there. It gave us something to read about, talk about, listen to about for – called two weeks. It has slowed to a painful halt. Uh, but there's a couple big names still sitting out there unsigned. One in particular has been a point of interest to mine for a long time, and I want to just get it out there that there's no personal vendetta – against and Clowney coming from me. I think he's been a fine player. Um, I think it was the right decision to make at the time by the Texans taking him number one overall. And, you know, he's been a good contributing member of the two teams that he's played on. But I'm wondering, is he holding out for some sort of big deal? Has he done something that I'm unaware of that warrants a $100 million payday? I mean, I looked up. His stats, his career high for sacks in the season, nine and a half. He had twenty-one tackles for loss and seventeen, which in most years would have led the league. But that year, uh Chandler Jones said twenty-eight for Arizona. Carter, you've been a big supporter of Clowney for a while. I know you and I have talked a little bit about the Ravens even going after him. Am I am I being too critical against him or is he closer to being a average player than a true game wrecker.
1: I mean, you say there's no personal vendetta against him, but that that's the only reason that you have this much hate towards him. I mean, this dude has come into the league and done everything possible. And I know his his sack numbers aren't where you'd want them to be, but he's the most double-teamed player for an edge rusher in the entire league. I mean, teams build their entire game plan around this dude. He's He's as fast as like any running back in the league. He's what does he weigh? Like two eighty, two seventy. The dude's a giant, and he's not only good in pass rush. Like you said, he he didn't lead the league, but he's near the lead of the near the lead of the league in uh, tackles for a loss. So, I mean, this dude is fucking amazing, and yeah, he might be asking for a hundred million dollar deal, and I think the rumor is he's asking for twenty million a year, but. I think the, the sack numbers is what's holding them back. I think he's not getting that because of uh, his sack numbers. But I think whoever signs him, they're going to get a good player. The only issue is really going to be health. And, you know, he's had some health issues. Some of them do seem like they could be lingering health issues. Um, but, you know... It, I, I think he's an awesome player. I think he's definitely lived up to the hype, and I think whoever signs him is going to be happy they signed him. If he Carter, could- is,
2: there a, is there a locker room concern here? I mean, I just think Clowney, and, and you think back to the year he sat out at South Carolina, he's a guy who's already been traded once. I, I just wonder, is is any locker room issue here? You think he's a bad chemistry guy, kind of tears the team down behind the scenes?
1: I mean, I I haven't heard any of that. Um, It's definitely possible, but, you know, I think the trade happened because Bill O'Brien's an idiot. I mean, that's my only answer. And he did it again this year. Like, he traded DeAndre Hopkins, who's a stud for, like, nothing, right before, I forget, uh, before Diggs got traded for, like, double what they got for Hopkins. So I honestly think it's, one, because Bill O'Brien's an idiot. And then, uh, the, you know, I mean, sitting out of college is like, that's happening a lot now. You know, a lot of these players, if they know they're going one, they're not playing their bowl games. They're they're putting themselves first because the colleges don't. And yeah, I don't think you, that's you bring a up a good point. Clowney was
0: kind of a trailblazer in that space. I mean, we've seen McCaffrey, uh, Bosa, uh, a lot of guys now it's almost become par for the course. So I'll, I'll actually give credit where credit's due there that, uh. You know, I don't know if that's so much of a character issue. Him just being smart and wanting to uh, and secure a future for himself. Another big name floating around out there. It's been floating around for a long time now. Is Antonio Brown? Rumors started swirling the other week that he was interested in joining Brady down in Tampa Bay. Bruce Arians quickly put the kibosh on that one. Just earlier today, you know, another obscure Instagram rant from this guy where he was taking shots at Julio Jones for. Really no reason that I could understand. Um, I'm putting his chances of playing again in the NFL at 3%, and that would mean – and that – I think I'm being a little gracious there. I, I put that with a little asterisk that it would take extreme injury situations for some team that's somewhat contending to bring this guy in. Darren, have we seen Antonio Brown play his last NFL game, or does he still have a future out in front of him? No, I'm with you.
2: He's done like dinner. He's this is Ray Rice all over again, as far as I'm concerned. Just the hoops you gotta jump through with the NFL alone, not to mention the PR nightmare he becomes for whatever organization picks him up. I mean, look, well, he's on the wrong side of thirty. And don't get me wrong, I think in general, when it comes to professional sports, talent prevails and people will look past a, a lot of things if you're the best wide receiver in the NFL. But in 2020, it's uh, it's a little bit of a different landscape than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. So I, I think given all the off-field antics, I, I just think it's over. I, I think he is uh Yeah, no, the old adage
0: is, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze. And history has shown us, at least during the last 20 years, that the Patriots are traditionally the last outposts uh, for these cast-offs. And if it doesn't, or when it doesn't, work there uh they're pretty much relegated to uh you know the shelf for the rest of their life
2: well and to something you said in there too rj it's i don't even think if you have depth issues if if you have injuries that you'd go get him. because if if you're waiting for you know your number one or number two receiver to go down before you're thinking about antonio brown i i just don't see it playing out like that this is one of those things where you're either in or, or you're out on a b it's it's not a matter of who's on the depth chart because he's you know, talent wise, uh, incredible. Any, any team would take him, but, uh, it, it's one of those things where can you tolerate what happens off the field? And I just don't think any organization out there will.
1: Do we know if he's even eligible to play? If he was signed by a team, would he be able to play day one or doesn't he have to go through, uh, the NFL still? I mean, don't they have, to-
0: I think I've read something that's speculation. If he were to sign from a team that he would be suspended the first eight games. He could appeal it. It would probably come down to six. But yeah, there's, uh, there's eligibility issues, for lack of a better phrase, for sure. Let's, uh, we're going to move on to a new semi segment of the show, and hopefully we're able to continue this moving forward. But, Town, I believe we got our uh, first email from uh, a fan last week, and there's a question for the group.
4: Yeah, it sounds a lot more professional when I say it this way. A listener David from Chicago would love to get the opinion on how the different leagues should handle the shortened season.
0: Okay. Uh, Carter, you want to tackle the NFL for us?
1: Yeah, and, and with the NFL, you know, first of all, I'm praying that the season doesn't get shortened. This is the one sport that we have left, the one the one hope, but I'm not very confident that it's not going to be shortened. but you know, I think it really depends on how short the season gets. And, and uh, looking back in the history of the league, there was a year where they had to shorten the season in 83. And I actually really like what they did in 83. Uh, they had a nine-game season. They took the top eight teams from both the AFC, and NFC, and then they uh, pretty much put them in a tournament. And, every you know, if you lost, you were out. And then the two winning teams from each side play in the Super Bowl. But you know, I really think that if the season gets too short, we just rank the teams one through thirty two and just have a single or double elimination tournament. The winner of the tournament gets like half the Lombardi trophy. Uh or they just replace the football with an asterisk, but you know, something. I think it's just a huge tournament. You know, to for
0: uh, for a first timer, it sounds like he's got his shit together and did his research here. Darren, you're our resident NBA expert, uh, the NBA has had a shortened season in the past. It was under much different circumstances, and they were able to um, you know, set things up from the beginning. Considering they're in, I guess, the last quarter of the season, if they come back, what does
2: it look like? Yeah, it's interesting. Both the NBA and NHL are in a position where they have to think about not only this season, but next season. you, know, you look at the NFL, MLB, it's all about – When is the season going to start? Is it going to be truncated? But for the NBA, it's how you manage this season could potentially affect what goes on with the upcoming season as well. So there's, I think it's 20 games left, uh, about 20 games left. So yeah, two-thirds of the way through the season. Uh, I think what's interesting too here for the NBA specifically, as this is all unfolding or really it's it's nothing's unfolding right now, right? Everything's on lockdown here in the US. But in China, their professional league just now is starting to ramp up and try and get things back in motion. And they've set a couple of targeted return dates that they've had to push back a few times. And and so the NBA, I believe, is is closely watching how that unfolds and and taking away whatever lessons they can and applying it to their situation. I've also heard a couple ideas thrown out here, especially for this season. On how to manage, you know, instead of having the traditional or I won't even say traditional, just the status quo, where every team plays in their own city, all these major metro areas, obviously a ton of these affected by the whole COVID-19 outbreak. If you restart the season, could you possibly restart it a bit sooner if you pick just like a couple centralized locations? Like I'm talking like college towns in the middle of nowhere where everybody just, all the players bunker down in like Omaha, Nebraska for like two months and somewhere that's a little less exposed to the situation, it neutralizes the home court situation. Uh, it also takes out the travel risk and, and reduces the the possible spread. So that was an interesting idea I saw out there. I'd, I'd love to see what type of, uh, again, neutral, I'm thinking neutral, small college towns, middle of nowhere. Where you would just have you know NBA city built up for the uh, back half of the year, uh, you know I, I it's going to be tough. I, I don't see the NBA kicking back up until I don't know. I, I, I'd be surprised if any games are played before June. So if that's the case, maybe you get another five regular season games in, maybe ten, and then get to the postseason, uh, and then you could still finish. You know, late July, maybe mid August, and and have things generally on schedule for next season. But yeah, it is a it's a cluster for sure. You have to ensure that whatever you do, you're thinking about next season as well.
0: Yeah, I, uh, even for the non diehard NBA fans amongst this group, I think uh, not a single one of us wouldn't do just about anything uh, to get a Clippers Lakers playoff series on TV available for us to watch. Real quick. On baseball, my thoughts and recommendation, I think working through the comp piece would be a little tricky, Uh, but once that got figured out, I don't think there's a lot of people out there that are going to cry or lose sleep over 20 or 30 games being cut. Uh, You know, at one point baseball was 140 some odd games and uh, 161 has been a number that people, or excuse me, 162 has been a number that a lot of people have taken issue with over the past. If push comes to shove, Uh, I would say eliminate interleague play. Um, It's nice, it's fun, but not exactly necessary. And I guess my outside-the-box idea would be to implement a a once-a-week or once-a-weekend doubleheader rule, um, probably for divisional games and games where uh, they had line of sight to travel the next day to understand who could afford to do what. But um, hopefully it doesn't come to those extremes, and they just shorten the season a little bit right so we've offered our best guesses and conjectures about what's going to happen to the major team sports uh you know jimmy i'm curious for the most popular individual sport in this country if not the world uh what does the rest of the year look like for golf i guess selfishly uh worried about the most uh, the the four majors but uh what about the subsequent events that coincide along those throughout the calendar year
3: Yeah, dude. So they'll find a way to play the majors. I really think whether or not that happens like in late summer and fall, like they're going to figure it out. The majors are the big money makers for all of those organizations that support it. But like with all due respect to the other sports, golf is going to be like the craziest one to see how this all plays out. Cause like, as you mentioned, it's an individual sport and there is like so much that rides on current year performance for golf. And it's going to be this situation where you have all of like the big name tournaments that are getting rescheduled on like back half of the year. And the ones that are going to get iced out are those like lesser known tournaments that like the guys who got promoted from the corn Ferry tour, which is like the minor league tour last year. Like those guys rely on those smaller field events like the John Deere, the Barracuda. Like I know nobody gives a shit about this, but it's like, it's going to be really crazy because everybody's going to be jockeying for like. FedEx cup points, which determines who gets status next year. And then like, you're going to have college players that are coming out. You're going to have like the corn Ferry tour current year, which like feeds into the PGA tour and the top 50 essentially from that tour get status out of the PGA tour. And like, that's the interesting part about all of it. Like they'll figure out the majors, but those guys that like graduate from the corn Ferry tour, again, not to get like too deep into golf, but they graduate from the Corn Fairy Tour and make it to the PGA Tour. Like there's so many guys that that only happens to like once, twice, three times in their career. And you go from making like maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year in on the Corn Fairy Tour to like getting a couple years with a million dollars of earnings on the PGA Tour. And I don't know that for a golf nut, like that's going to be wild to see. I know nobody probably gives a shit about this, but. Uh, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that as well as like qualification for Ryder cup and next, I, I don't know. It's crazy. I don't know nobody cares, but no, we, all, really right, Jimmy, all right, Jimmy, all right, Jimmy,
2: you, you tell <laughs> us, Jimmy, which corn ferry tour player is going to be impacted the most by this.
3: <laughs> look, look, you know, I, I got to give a shout out to my boy, Vince India. He's 31 years old from Deerfield, Illinois. He's really just struggling to make it. Guy makes like $50,000 a year, has 70000 in expenses. So, you know, he's going to be really hurting for cash. There's a lot of guys that are like driving Uber right now and finding odd jobs to uh, make some ch- ch- cheddar. But, yeah, whatever.
0: It's, it's comforting to hear that they'll prioritize the majors and hopefully we see Augusta in some shape or form in 2020. But now – Collectively, we're all going to lose sleep over the corn cob ferry pipe tour, wondering what's going to happen to these poor guys. We're going to take a break, but before we do that, uh, we're going to head over to Town, who has got what I'm led to believe is some, uh, some pretty challenging trivia that he's going to run by in the group. Uh, first one to answer right wins Town, or are you going to take us through the rules?
4: Yeah, we'll go through this, right? So, name that athlete. We've done it once so far. Rory's got one. Everybody else has zero, especially Carter. Uh, I'm going to go through one by one, six or seven clues. If you guess on a specific clue or hint and you get it wrong, you cannot answer on the next hint. You have to wait. You skip a hint. right. You guys ready? One of his first TV appearances was on MTV Rock and Jock Softball. As a 12-year-old, he hit a home run off of Terry Francona into the upper deck of Tiger Stadium. Bryce Harper. No. Prince Fielder. Prince Fielder on the second hit. Ah! I'm going to read through these because because these these were awesome. All right, he committed to playing with Arizona State, but instead was drafted seventh overall in the 2002 MLB draft, one pick after Zach Granke. He spent his 2003 playing in Beloit, Wisconsin for the Beloit Snappers. I will
2: Never (laughs) forget.
4: He tied with Ryan Howard to lead the MLB in RBIs with 141 in 2009. That same year, he became the first Brewer to win the Home Run Derby. In 2011, he signed with the Detroit Tigers where his father played. They are also the only father-son duo to hit 50-plus home runs in a single season, and both ended their careers with exactly 319 home runs wow
0: a recent Sporkle challenge actually revealed that last one those uh job well done on the research all right now we're going to take a break we come back we will enter the conference room which is the newly renamed section of the show where we tackle non-sports topics and current events you're listening to you've got mail
1: okay i'm finally perfect you know Y'all already know what it is. And if yeah, you don't, yeah, this, 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 then a great yeah, many fresh will yeah. enlighten you. Ladies and gentlemen, pimps and, players, I come out. and ass rappers and true rhyme sales. Come out. Is,
2: the call oh, yes, is so hold on to your teenage daughter. Jimmy, we get it. You're trying to get a fucking bid on the Corn Fairy Tour, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, give give them all the free press you can. Hoping for an invite. A lot more rich and a whole
3: lot smaller. So bring in your brain, young Carter. 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 All I can see
0: is the flow. Come on. bring in the brain, young Carter. Well, I got it. Don't worry. I got it. Welcome back to You've Got Mail. We have entered the conference room. Uh We are all probably getting close to that point where we need to start making decisions on what we do with our hair <laughs> as men living through quarantine. Uh I think the good news is that we really don't have anyone to particularly look good for unless people are doing a lot of video conferencing while working from home or maybe worried about what they look like with a significant other. But uh, I think we're, we're reaching the point where people need to make decisions on what to do. I only really see, I guess, three options on what can be done. It's either grow it, buzz it, or if you trust your significant other to cut it. Go for it, Um, I. I don't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities. My hair has been one of them. I've taken pride over the years and maybe paying more than anyone should to get a good haircut. I have. I go to a salon. I have the girl who cuts my hair's number. Hold on,
3: on. your hair is not that good. I just want to go out and say that. Like I think the rest of the group will agree with us. You might have a full head of hair, but you you look like an idiot most of the time.
1: So as the guy with the best hair on the show, I, I will say that there's a fourth option, and I've already done the fourth option. Cutting it yourself. No, shout out Lorenzo. He's my boy who works at whatever whatever salon, barbershop he works at. I went to his house, and he cut my hair. So he's got like a little barbershop set up. I went over there, he cut my hair, gave him 25 bucks, and walked out the door.
0: I'd written that down as a potential option.
3: How do you know he doesn't have the COVID?
1: My, I covered myself in hand sanitizer and face sanitizer.
3: Like Frank and Always Sunny?
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I went over there. He's like, oh, I got everything sanitized, man. I'm like, yeah, it looks like it. There was like hair everywhere. But um, yeah, he had like a little barber's seat in his house. He cut my hair. And then I looked fresh for a day. And then my hair it again.
0: Is it irresponsible to go to someone's house or have someone come to your house if it's just you and him or you and her for... I don't know, 15, 20-minute haircut?
1: Probably. I mean, I'd say yes, but I had to do it. I'm kind of newly single and kind of not single, but you know.
0: Darren, you've taken on multiple different looks in your life with your hair. I'm. Mean, are you getting the point where you need to make a decision on what to do with it?
2: Oh, 100%. Last haircut I got. I actually walked out thinking it's one of the worst I've had in recent memory and it could not have happened at a worse time a week before COVID struck. So I'm over here sweating bullets. I'm going with the no one seeing me for the next two months approach and right. day, day one post-release head straight to the barber. But, uh, yeah, man, I'm, uh, I'm itching for a fix it over here. I'll say as much as we are uh, bitching about all of this, isn't this actually like dramatically worse for, uh, All the females out there, like, aren't they the ones like going to the salon like once a month here? Like, what's going to happen here at week three of quarantine when I I can only speak to, you know, Emily, for instance, I'll I'll put her on blast here. She's naturally a redhead, but you never know it because her hair is always dyed blonde. And she's at the point where the red's starting to show here. So if she doesn't get to the salon here soon, she's going to be outed. I have to think. That's the case for a number of women out there.
3: Look, Darren, thanks for that personal anecdote. But I I think it's so much easier for girls to just hide, like, growing their hair out. Like, they don't have to style it, per se, every day. And maybe this is an ignorant take. But I feel like it's just easier to not get your hair cut and grow it out for a girl than it is for a guy.
1: He does make a good point with the coloring, though. Like, if girls color their hair, then, yeah, they might be a little Yeah, they're fucked. Sure, I'm not going to pretend to know anything about that. Yeah.
0: But I was going to say good good points all around because I think there's a, there's a line in the sand. There's a difference between getting it cut, getting it styled, getting it colored, or going to dry bar and getting a blowout, which after being with my wife now for almost a decade, I still have no idea what that actually means. But, yeah, I, Darren asked the question. I'm not sure I have the answer. Is it a more difficult time for guys or girls to be dealing with their hair during quarantine? I'm going to... I'm going to take the misogynistic view and say it's, uh, it's tougher for guys because we're used to getting it cut on a more regular basis. I agree. You know where I stand. So hair aside, there's something that's been driving me nuts about this entire COVID lifestyle, living under quarantine. And we've been dealing with it from the beginning, and it might have even happened before this became – a full-blown pandemic and that's people stocking up on of all things toilet paper. Look, I get soap, disinfectant, frozen food, canned shelf-stable food. That's fine. I I I could understand that, but I I can't for the life of me wrap my head around the toilet paper. Do people not know how to use a shower? Do they think that running water is going to stop? Are in this time of panic and angst? Are people that worried about having clean asses that they are hoarding all the toilet paper they can get their hands on? My only, the only I've thought about this for way too long and way too much already, but the only logical, semi-logical conclusion I can draw is that now that people working in corporate America are exclusively working from home, did they do the math and say, okay, if I go to the bathroom at work every day, five days a week, and use the toilet paper provided by my facility that I'm going to need to compensate by having that same amount at my house on top of what I already have. Oh. So they they did a calculation and said, I need to have 12 extra rolls a week. What, what else could be prompting these people to be hoarding
3: toilet paper? Dude, I like, I, I don't really have a toilet paper take. I'm going to be honest with you, but like you said, you opened that with something that's been driving you nuts and, And I have something that like, absolutely, I didn't realize it until today, but something that's been absolutely driving me nuts. I was on a call this morning for work and somebody referred to the coronavirus or COVID as the novel coronavirus. And that just fucking drives me nuts. I don't know, like, I don't think anybody in the world knows what novel means I don't understand why people insist on, like, calling it the novel coronavirus. Like, what are you trying to sound more up than me? It means new. Dude,
4: dude,
3: don't pretend like you know what it means. We're all fucking (laughs) idiots. None of us know what it means.
1: Yeah, there's other coronavirus out there, and this is the one that's killing people.
3: Okay, then call it the fucking Not new crazy. coronavirus. Don't call it the novel <laughs> coronavirus. Like, I, why do you have to sound so sophisticated by calling it the novel coronavirus? That's, it just that's drives the world me media and their novel coronavirus. It drives me up a goddamn wall. And I am an idiot, and most of the world's an idiot. Stop calling it the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus. Call it the new coronavirus if you insist. Where are you on the COVID-19 designation? That's fine. That's fine. Like, that's what people are calling it. That's like what it's classified as. I know that sounds fucking hypocritical from what I just said, but novel coronavirus sounds so douchey, and I just want to hit everybody that says it. No, I wanna- get what you're saying. I get what you're
2: saying. It is, it's a little bit of semantics here because, to your point, nobody knew what a coronavirus was before six months ago. So we want to not
1: the novel coronavirus people more. Or do you want to hit the toilet paper people more? Novel coronavirus.
2: All right, so going back to the original point, though, RJ, you got a problem with people stocking up with toilet paper. I mean, what, would, what should they be stocking up instead?
0: Look, I'm not here to, to recommend what people should be stocking up on. But I could understand people stocking up on shelf-stable food. So disinfectants, the things that we're being told to use and use on a regular basis. While we're talking through this, maybe it's a way for people to cope, that if they stock up, if they have a full pantry, broom closet of anything they could need, that they're going to stand a better chance to fight this thing off. But there's now not enough toilet paper out there for everyone, which is an insane thing to have a shortage of.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, it's ridiculous. I think what's driving it at the end of the day is people looked around and said, hey, what's in everybody's house? Not a a whole lot of common denominators out there. Everybody likes TP. Everybody needs it. And to your point, nobody wants to resort to these uh, life hack, jump in the shower, reuse a hand towel type techniques. So I, I get it. I understand why people are doing it. But I'm with you. It is ridiculous.
1: That's a good point too is that what else at the grocery store does everybody have in their house? It's only – not everyone, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, raw, bare essentials, toilet paper, paper towels. That's it. Yeah, rice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not a long run. All right, we've we've dwelled on what has pissed us off and is driving us crazy. Let's talk about something that's brought some people some – some joy and happiness. Personally, haven't watched uh, an episode yet. When I first saw it trending, I thought Joe Exotic was a porn star. Uh, but the larger group here has been watching or has finished the Tiger King documentary. Darren, I, I think you're the only one who's actually gone, you know, the full 15 start to finish. Is America missing out by not watching it? You know, is this, uh, is this uncharted territory for documentaries?
2: Uh, look, I'd say it's worth the watch. I mean, for all those out there that love shows like Storage Wars or Bar Rescue, I mean, this is that and then some. Uh, the the shock value alone, I, I think, is uh, makes it worthwhile. It's uh, I, I would say a little drawn out uh, at the risk of spoilers, and I'll, I'll try to tread carefully here. Uh, to me, they played out this murder mystery plot element a little bit too much uh and and the best parts of the show are when you just have the camera on the likes of joe exotic and you let the tape roll that said i i do think it's uh i mean it's it's pretty entertaining again if i I can't help but draw the comparison to storage wars If, if that's a show if that's your cup of tea then yeah absolutely give uh uh joe exotic tiger king a watch
3: dude the murder mystery is the best part carol for sure no. fed her husband the
2: well tiger. jimmy how how where how far along are i, I,
3: I saw I, the whole thing i saw the whole
2: thing okay okay so maybe let me rephrase the uh the mystery around the um joe exotic crime uh i i thought was too drawn out like they go into all the schematics and it's just like this is Dumb! These guys are a bunch of morons. Like, we're not gonna. Are we really chopping this up like the the master plan that was or was not. Like, it was just again, put the camera on Joe Exotic. Let him do his thing.
3: It's. I think it's just interesting, like entertainment value, because it's such a collection of probably like the weirdest people in America. Hundred percent. If nothing else, it's enjoyable to watch.
2: It's all – th- it, and maybe, Jimmy, you're hitting on something that I'm trying to say and not saying well here. That show is all about the characters. When they try to layer in a little bit of plot, it's like just throw it away. Keep it on the characters because these people are just unbelievable.
0: I don't know much. I know he does not live in Florida, but Carter, he, he strikes me as someone who's reminiscent of your people. I mean
1: well, – it- well, well, so Carol does live in Florida and oh, – actually- I can't correct it. Yeah, so she's the one who's according to her is trying to be like the the good animal hoarder and the good non-breeder of these animals. But so growing up in Sarasota, there's actually a big cat rescue location in Sarasota. So not only is it in Florida, it's in my hometown. So these are really my people. So I might, you know, during this quarantine, yeah, the cages might be locked up, the front gate might be be all chained up, but I'm going to go over there and take a look and see if I can figure out this crime because there's a lot of open questions.
2: Carol Baskin strikes me as the type of woman who was like a fifth-grade substitute teacher. Carter, do you ever have her growing up in Sarasota?
1: No, but I will say in, there's a scene where she's talking about like, uh, how she met her, her husband, the, the millionaire, and she's talking about how she's walking down Nebraska Avenue at 3 a.m. The only people who walk down Nebraska at 3 a.m. are hookers. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure she was a hook, and she went home with him at 3 a.m. the first night she met him. I mean, wow. Carol
2: she was a hooker.
1: Wow. So
0: is it a is it a need to have or a nice to have docu series?
2: It's a nice to have if you don't. In this want to time it's a need to if, have. If, if, you, if yeah, you're right. Everybody's got all sorts of free time. So unless you've got you know, 40 hours of content lined up, it's it's probably worth a watch. But uh, if you don't want to commit, uh, if nothing else, there's got to be, I have to imagine there's some greatest hits collection on YouTube already, and that's probably only going to run you 10 minutes, and that is definitely worth a watch. It's seven hours of your quarantine. Watch it.
0: All right, there you have it. The boys from uh, You've Got Mail giving Tiger King four thumbs up. We're going to take another break, but again, before we do that, we're going to go back to town in the truck with a second trivia question of the day.
4: All right. Again, Roy, leader in the clubhouse, two. Everybody else, nothing. Name that athlete. This retired NFL player was born in Ontario, Canada in 1985. He is number one. Ontario Smith. Darren, you cannot answer this next question. Damn it. He is, he is number one in the BYU ranks for a career of receiving yards and touchdowns, but second to Dennis Pitta for career receptions.
2: Ontario Smith.
4: <laughs> pretty pretty impressive considering he entered a 2009 draft after his junior year, where he was drafted in the fourth round. He quickly became a go-to receiver for this renowned Tennessee Volunteer
2: quarterback. Austin Border Collie. I don't care what the rules are. Let's go. Oh, 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 oh.
4: <laughs> let me let me read the rest of the clues. Numerous concussions and injuries forced him out of the league in 2013 after four years with the Colts and brief stints in his fifth year with the Niners and Patriots. Some believe he is a close relative to Lassie.
1: <laughs> that was within the rules, Darren. You were allowed to answer that there.
2: I thought I wasn't allowed to answer at all. I don't know. Town, despite I don't, him think, I don't think
1: Ontario Smith
4: was ever an actual answer.
0: Can but, we give Can we give Darren the point?
4: Darren's got the point.
0: What about Ontario right, Smith?
2: What is Ontario take, Smith up to these
0: days? We're going to take another oh, wow. break. We come back. Back of the Day Buffet. We got three unbelievable thriller drama movies to discuss and one rap album that no one outside of this group and maybe 100 other people in the world care about know about but we absolutely love it you're listening you've got mail
1: what's wrong with me
3: Yo, how about, Darren, for those that watch Tiger King, how about the zookeeper girl who straight up got her arm ripped off by a tiger <laughs> and refused to blame anything that Joe Exotic did?
2: Literally went back to work as fast as possible. was
3: it, it like three or four days later she was back in anyway? work? I, 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 I think stopped it watching
4: it after episode one because I was like, I, I'm not too hooked on this because I think episode one was just like setting the scene a little bit. You didn't like episode like, one? No, I, I, I liked it, but it just felt like, all right, that's the entire documentary, right? Yeah, that's fair. I didn't realize, I didn't realize more to the that's story, fair. right? But so then I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll I'll give it a shot. I'll put on episode two. Literally the first 10 <laughs> seconds is the girl getting her arm ripped off. I was like, all right, I'm in. Did
1: yeah. You, you, um, did you notice, or like when he just goes into the gift shop and he's like, all right, guys, I ain't going to lie. Someone just had their arm bit off by a tiger. <laughs>
2: Joe exotic teaching leadership one oh one straight from the gut letting the people know what the situation is.
1: I ain't gonna lie. I
4: also he put on the he put on the paramedics jacket or the EMT jacket. <laughs> Did anybody else notice that?
2: No, I missed that. That's fantastic though. Doesn't surprise me at all.
0: Welcome back to You've Got Mail. The boys and I stepped in a DeLorean, headed off to an olive garden, and we are currently at the Back of the Day buffet. First movie we're going to start with came out March 17, 2000. I'm just going to read the uh, quick synopsis for everyone. After a teenager has a terrifying vision of him and his friends dying in a plane crash, he prevents the accident only to have death hunt them down one by one. That's right. We're talking about Final Destination, a 2000 thriller, 20 years ago. Hard to believe. Um, in doing some hairy research, some half-ass internet research, if you will, my first job was Devin Sawa. He plays the main character, Alex. We first saw him in Little Giants as Junior Floyd. He got a cup of coffee in Casper, did a few things that no one had really paid much attention to, and then he's thrust into the lead role in this movie. Um, I'm, I mentioned D2 at the top of the show last week. We talked about Josh Jackson, and the Skulls. I'm calling Devin Sawa the Canadian Josh Jackson. They are exactly the same age. I have to think that they were going head-to-head for roles in the late 90s, early aughts. Uh, this is also a film debut. I'm sorry, not the film debut, but his second film. Sean William Scott, better known as Steve Stifler. I'm just going to read from 99 to 2000, just in a two-year span, he rips off these movies. 99, American Pie, 2000, Final Destination, 2000, Road Trip, 2000, Dude Wears My Car, and 2000, American Pie 2. I think it's safe to say in 2000, Sean William Scott was the hardest-working man in Hollywood. I was horrified to find out that the plane crash scene that really kicks off this movie was based on a real-life event at a TWA plane that crashed in 1996, shortly after leaving JFK. Originally, it was thought to be terrorist activity. The final conclusion that it was a mechanical failure inside of the engine, it was actually carrying a high school class going on a trip to Paris. That's That's wild. Between- million budget, which in 2000 seems like an insane amount of money for a movie in a movie like this. It made 113 worldwide. The director basically created The X Files. And I read that this movie was based off an episode that they actually never put into production. It spawned five sequels with a six set to film sometime in 2020 if we ever get back to movies actually going into production. Carter, you weren't here last time we uh, went through movies that we had seen in the past and some that have really stuck out to us. Do you remember first time you saw Final Destination? Have you seen it recently? Has it st- It's not a great movie. It teeters on the border of even being a good movie. But has it is it our generation's Friday the 13th Halloween? And I'm not saying... The original is as good as those two originals, but the fact that it's lived on and people continue to pay for and consume the brand.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely got a cult following, and and it might be considered our Halloween, our Friday the Thirteenth, though. Um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but the one thing that really stands out to me about this movie thing that I, the thing that I remember most is that creepy basement morgue dude, the the guy who like. <laughs> They meet after, after the plane crash And he's like, oh, you escaped death Now you're all gonna die Like, that dude has stuck with me Forever And I, I don't know what it was Maybe it was like his googly eyes Or just the creepy voice he used But, I mean, if I ever walk into a morgue And some creepy black dude Comes up to me and starts telling me That I'm gonna die Like, I'm believing him It's just that I've seen this before You change things on that bridge a wrinkle in reality, and that wrinkle
3: is you. Are you saying that we can't stop this? You're not supposed to be here.
1: You're short of death. So you let death have somebody else in your place, and then you take their spot in the realm of the living, all the days and years that they've yet to live. And they take your place in death. Then
0: the book's about I think he's supposed to symbolize, like, I, I think he's supposed to be the living form of death in that movie, if I interpret
4: it correctly. I
1: mean like, the dude in child's play who, like, says the Baham Bahala Baga and, like, brings the, the dude back, the Chucky back to life. So, like, I think they might be the same person or the same uh, sort of theme in both movies if he's supposed to be death. But I will say one more thing that stuck out to me in this movie. Is it was the first time that I noticed somebody named Carter in a movie. So one of the characters was named Carter. So you know this really stuck with me for a long time. It's a movie that I'll be uh, bringing with me wherever I go.
0: The bully, jock, greaser type guy. He was Carter, right?
2: I don't exactly remember
1: who he was. I just (laughs) remember that he had the name Carter. So he was cool.
2: What's the best? What's the best death in the movie series? the best death
0: in the movie series well i don't know if i'm qualified to answer that one uh
1: I do a knife just like falls on somebody after like their house explodes or something
2: i am also no final destination expert i can only remember the tanning bed is isn't, isn't doesn't some chick get burned alive in the tanning yeah, bed yeah that's
0: in that like was- three or four one of the one of the later ones but yeah that was uh i remember
3: that being gruesome
0: jimmy and you like, got any and- Thoughts or feelings on this one?
3: I, I the the death that sticks with me the most is like the rattling piece of metal on the train tracks that winds up Ooh. like severing. <laughs> someone's head. That was a good one.
2: I, I also I also that is a good one, Jimmy. The other one that comes to mind for me is the and this is the opposite end of the spectrum. The main character from the first one gets killed off screen between one and two. Yeah, I think they open with two saying. He died because a brick hit him in the head or something nondescript like that. It's unbelievable.
0: Unbelievable catch and call right there. You're absolutely right that they just reference it as if they're coughing or taking a sip of coffee saying, yeah, the guy that the entire first thing was based on, the guy that set this whole thing in motion, yeah, he died the other week. But uh, we're going to continue on business as brick usual.
2: Brick fell off a building, happening in the head, ho-hum, here's movie two.
0: Anyone out, anyone out there listening who's never seen Final Destination, I think this group would recommend. It's worth a watch. Maybe don't go any further.
1: Than I the original say when trying to think of this movie and think back to it, I kept going to the faculty. That movie is one fucked up movie. And every time I was thinking about Final Destination, it just kept popping up. Josh Hartnett and the faculty.
0: Yeah, you that- know, Final Destination is probably better with Josh Hartnett playing the lead agree
1: 100% and maybe that's why I was thinking that it was just like I wanted Josh Hartnett to be that guy
2: is Jamie Lee Curtis in the faculty is she the no. teacher no don't fucking... yeah
0: okay second movie uh, that came out 13 years ago this month again a pivotal year for this group is the year we graduated from high school was Disturbia out of the six movies that we will talk about by the end of this episode I think this is by far the most relevant for life today as we know it under quarantine. Uh, The guy who directed this one went on to work with Shia the very next year on Eagle Eye, which if you're just passively paying attention, you might confuse them for being the exact same movie if you weren't really following along closely. I've seen this movie maybe, I don't know, 10, a dozen times or so. I always forget that Shia's character in this movie is named Kale. He might be the first and last main character of any movie to be named Kale. David Morse is the guy who played Mr. Turner. Uh, spoiler alert, ends up to be the the uh, sociopathic killer living across the street. And I don't think there's a better actor that was suited for this role. Yeah, okay, it wasn't uh, a movie that was going to be or will ever be nominated for an award. Of any kind, Carter and I know him best because uh, we're negotiator junkies. And he leads the SWAT team in that movie. He's a method actor, and Shia LaBeouf is on record saying that during filming, he didn't talk to any of the actors under you know the age of twenty during the movie to keep up this scary, shady persona. And then as soon as they stop wrap, as soon as they wrapped up and stopped filming, they all said he's the nicest guy they had ever met. I would say this is an all-time movie to put on in the afternoon on a rainy or overcast Saturday. Just like Final Destination, 20 million dollar budget grossed 118 worldwide. We got to talk about Shia. He's a little bit older than us. Anyone in our ballpark would have came to know him and even Stevens. I think Holes put him on the map as, you know, he's got serious talent. He's just not some disney ass clown and then disturbia made us or collective movie watchers realize that he wasn't a kid anymore and this is really the beginning of his ascent now i think his career was derailed a little bit and he could have been bigger than he is today but here's from 2007 to 2010 here's what he does disturbia transformers indiana jones eagle eye wall street 2 it's in a three-year span. None of those movies are great. We're probably talking about Transformers 20 and 50 years from now. But uh, you know, nonetheless, he was working, and he was working on some, some pretty good stuff, entertaining, if nothing else. And then my final thought about this is, for whatever reason, it's burned in my memory that in an Entourage episode, E! takes a shot at this movie, and Shia in particular. I can't remember which episode, but... Him and Ari are trying to convince Vince to do some sort of movie as a money grab while simultaneously you know, igniting the comeback of his career after he takes a hiatus. Jimmy, you're a big fan of this. I know you're a big Shia guy. How are we talking about Disturbia five, ten years from now? Dude, I don't know if I'm a big
3: Shia guy. I don't know if that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, kind of went off the rails a little bit. <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, this was this was a movie that when it was on, we always we always watched it. It was again pure entertainment, not a great movie, but uh, certainly relatable to the times that we're living in now. I I have to echo the sentiment that the neighbor is just like the perfectly casted character. That's kind of what sticks out to me. I would also give a shout out to Shia's best friend, who's played by Aaron Yu. His name is Ronnie. Who's also in the next movie that we're gonna talk about, but just an all-time character in this, just kind of like a degenerate that keeps coming over to Shia's house and plays a great role.
1: So, RJ, I, I do have to say one thing. You mentioned that it's not gonna win any awards, but on the contrary, it did win the Teen Choice Award for Best Horror, and it was actually nominated for Best Kiss for the MTV Movie Award. So, you know, it it's got its its uh It's medals to go with how good it is. So
2: Yeah, and I'm going to piggyback off Carter there while we're shitting on RJ. While we're (laughs) calling Disturbia, the movie that we recognize Shia LaBeouf grew up, isn't the premise like a high school kid being – on house arrest, he's a child in this. I, I don't know if I'd call it the movie he grew up on. I, I don't know about that, but...
0: Uh, my, you know, my point there is that, look, we knew him from Even Stevens. We knew him from Holes. He was an adolescent. He was a kid, and while he's not a full-blown adult, either in real life or in the character he's playing, all of a sudden, you know, he's got a little bit of facial hair to him, a little bit of an edge. He wasn't this pudgy doughboy that was, you know pull on antics on a Disney show or in a Lewis Sacker uh, book turned into uh, a movie. I, I, for me, whatever reason, I just look at this and be like, okay, like Shia LaBeouf is much closer to an adult than he is Lewis Stevens at this point
1: in 2007.
2: An I mean- adult who won Best Kiss Award on the MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> Let's go.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean – the thing that put him on the map was 1 million trillion percent Transformers. I mean, that was only like six months later. And that grows 700 million. So we if you talk about Shia LaBeouf, I mean, it's all the Transformers.
0: Yeah, no doubt. But I, I guess I would pose the question, does he get Transformers without this movie showing that he's got a little bit of acting chops to him? Not that he was asked to do a whole lot, nor was he in Transformers
1: it was six months after. So they must've already been filming it. Like this dude must've been on the map before that.
0: Look at the new guy doing his research. I love it. All right. Third movie might be the, uh, the fan favorite amongst the group. It's 21. It's based on the book, bringing down the house, which for probably up until six or seven hours ago, I thought was a Michael Lewis book. Turns out it's not, uh, We see a very smarmy Kevin Spacey, a badass Lawrence Fishburne, and a relatively unknown Ben Sturgis, who, while I didn't exactly relate to and love the character, I thought it was the perfect guy to play Ben. I would have expected him to go on and do a whole lot more, but it turns out he went on to do a whole lot of nothing. Um, One of my sneaky favorite people in this movie is Jacob Pitt. I think uh, you know, people of our ilk would recognize him from Eurotrip. Um I, I guess I don't I'm not I'm not asking anyone in particular. Something to think on and someone answered at some point. But I think it's fair to say this is close while it's based on a true story, I still think the way it's told, it's kind of a ripoff of rounders. So my question becomes is it the PG thirteen rounders? of 2008, or any movie made since Rounders. There's an alternate ending that I came to read about where Mickey, um, Kevin Spacey's character, actually ends up escaping at the end. And him and Lawrence Fishburne run into each other after he's retired. They're at some casino in some Caribbean island and they start trading stories um, and gambling together and the credits roll. One of my favorite scenes, and probably the one that sticks out to me the most, is the room service dining hall mix-up scene where he's in it. He's going to Vegas on weekends. He's coming back to Cambridge. He wakes up He thinks he's calling down to the MGM kitchen for some food. Turns out he's back at MIT. Darren, you're, I guess we call the resident blackjack player in this group. Do you love this movie? Did you know the story before the movie? And do you know who Jeff Ma is?
2: I hate it. First off, Uh, I am. I think this is a uh, uh, dog shit movie personally, and I went to do my homework a little bit. I saw this on the hit list. I felt validated by the Rotten Tomatoes rating of 36 percent for 21 years. So I think that's the critics score,
3: man. The audience gave it 66 percent.
2: Is that good? is sixty six percent good? I think middling at best. Middling at best from my perspective. I think it's it's very cheesy, very over the top. Uh, you know I, I, to your point, R j, there are a couple scenes in there when Spacey is teaching the lecture and and reeling in his protege. like that's the the what is it, the chaos theory or whatever it is with the three doors. Uh, you know, there there are a couple, you know, Smoke and mirrors, good scenes. But uh, overall, I thought this was uh, uh, basically a big old turd. So, probably the wrong guy to come to for the uh, the positive review.
1: I do think we need an obligatory. The book was better.
2: Haven't read the book. Is it good? It,
1: I, I did read it. Uh, one of like the five books I've read in the last 15 years. So, yeah, it was good. I finished it, which is saying something for me. So,
2: the story is fascinating. The story is fascinating. I will say that. And RJ, to your point, I'm generally aware of what's his name, Jack Ha. Ma. Ma, sorry. Uh, so generally aware of of what happened there, and and so yeah, the story is fascinating in itself. I just felt like the the movie was was not so great. Jimmy,
0: I've let you chew on it for all of three and a half minutes. Is this PG thirteen rounders?
3: I think it tries to be. It's got kind of a lot of the similar type of characters with like. I guess you would say Teddy KGB being played in a different role as Kevin Spacey with just this ultimate scumbag guy, but I I don't know if it's really like PG thirteen rounders, but it certainly it feels like a PG thirteen movie when you watch it, and I I kind of agree with there, and it's a good movie. It's the the typical Jimmy response. It's entertaining. I don't know if I would recommend it. But I, Kevin Spacey plays a great dirtbag in this movie. You know, maybe he's a dirtbag in real life, too. So
2: it's kind of foreshadowing. But I think call, I think calling it the PG-13 version of Rounders is a disservice to Rounders. My personal opinion. Would, would definitely agree.
0: You're right. Look, I, I think we can agree that it probably hasn't aged very well. But at the time, when we were 19, 20 years old, this was a movie that we probably watched on quasi-repeat background noise, if you will. So it was fun, it was entertaining, but
3: our lives didn't normally change. And from that perspective too, similar with Rounders, I'll give you that it makes you wanna go out and gamble. Makes you wanna go get a card game with your friends or go to the casino and grab a table for blackjack. Like it definitely made you wanna go out and gamble.
0: Yeah, this might be the first movie that kind of puts Vegas in perspective. They keep talking about Vegas and Rounders, but all they ever do is show Atlantic City scenes. Hangover doesn't come out until a few years after this. So this might be the first time we actually see Vegas as young, impressionable men. All right, so we added one to the mix for this week's episode, non-movie. This is music related. Uh, It's a few days from now, but uh, on March 4th, we'll celebrate the 10 year anniversary of Sammy Adams, Boston's boy. Uh, For those of you unfamiliar with Sammy Adams, I wouldn't say he's the founding father of frat rap. Uh, It probably belongs to Asher Roth. And to be fair, Sammy Adams came on the scene because he uh, did a remix to the Asher Roth or infamous song. I love college. Sammy called it. I hate college. He's a few years older than us. Um, I forget which Northeast school he went to. He played soccer. He quit. He joined a frat. He started rapping. Um, Look, he's not ever going to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. We won't be force-feeding our kids his albums, making sure that they listen to it. But again, like 21 was right place, right time. His music was fun to put on at parties. He was kind of talking about what we were doing. And this song had, I would say, two or three of his more popular, more um, you know, influential is the wrong word, but songs that uh, we became fixated with. Jimmy, I'll, I'll, I ended with you on 21. I'm going to start with you here. Are you a Sammy Adams guy? Are you still listening to him when no one's looking?
3: I. This is not a song that you can find on Spotify, unfortunately. So you have to go to YouTube to watch it or listen to it every time. But he remixed Asher Roth's, Asher Roth's I Love College for I Hate College. And I think I can speak for Carter and I, we listened to that song, no short of a hundred thousand times. Like I still listen to that song just to kind of get me going, but I, I loved Sammy Adams back in the day when he was relevant, but other than I hate college, I haven't spent much time listening to him since.
1: Yeah. uh, I will say that the only thing I listen to is I hate college. I mean, that song I feel like is the epitome of college that we all experienced. And I thought it was probably the best song ever written by a, a white rapper. Sorry, Eminem. But, um, Whoa, I, shots fired. I, I agree that the the big problem with that song is it wasn't on this CD. This song wasn't on any CD. So to find it, it's not on Spotify. It's not on Apple music. You have to YouTube it as Jimmy said, and that part sucks. So it's a, it's a song I still listen to, but not one that's on my playlists because of that fact.
0: Darren, you're on record not being a big Sammy guy. Get us out of here on this. Do you not like him and his music personally? Do you hate the entire genre he represents? Do you think they undermined it? not just you know the rap that we grew up with, but uh, what had existed before and after?
2: Yeah. You know, you got the player haters ball over here. Silky Johnson in the house, just zigging on every zag tonight. Uh, not a big fan of the Boston boy. Uh, I did. I look, I guess the, I hate college song. It's catchy. It, it's good for a party. I'm, i I have no real beef with that, but I I can't even name you another Sammy Adams song. I'm not even trying to go back and find any. I didn't even uh, find myself drawing blanks on Spotify. I just never, never got into it. Wasn't my thing. I just felt like it was uh, average at best. I I don't have any further of a hot take than that.
0: Sammy, if you're listening, Darren does not speak for the entire group. We appreciate what you did for us. When you did it, we are forever in your debt. That'll. Uh, what, do we, what do we?
2: What do we think Sammy's up to these days?
1: Probably find one on Cameo for seven bucks.
0: <laughs> Carter, he's so, on. He's on Cameo for seven dollars.
1: No, I was a guess. I, I don't know if that's true, okay. but that's my guess. I I I would
0: I would, st- I would uh, venture to say that's probably not far off. And to supplement the lack of income from Cameo, something tells me he's selling insurance in the greater Boston area.
4: He broke he broke his neck a year and a half ago. Oh,
2: He's God. Uh, well, that's Sorry for sending the bad juju, Sammy. I the only other thing I can think of is I could see post pandemic us finding ourselves down on a weekend trip to Bloomington and Sammy Adams playing at the Bluebird which hosted Afro Man with a $5 cover while we were down there. I could see Sammy following in his footsteps. Sammy,
0: we're praying for you.
2: So that's a hot spot.
0: All right. That'll just about do it for us again. This was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you Carter for joining on round two. Uh, hopefully we'll be back with a future episode. Um, if not, we hope we provided some entertainment during these lull and scary times on behalf of Jimmy, Darren, Carter, town and myself, uh, You've got male crew. Thanks you for listening. It reminds you that in the poker game of life, women are the fucking rake.
3: Goodbye. Sammy Adams, lazy boy, Maddie Trump, yeah, Boston stand up. We got him. Oh, 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 baby.